All right, good morning. Uh, we're going to be continuing our study on how we got the Bible. And before we get started, I believe this is the best way to do it. I want to briefly review kind of everything that we've gone through so far. Uh, as we got started, you know, remember we talked about the different writing materials that have been used throughout time. Uh, the papyrus, the parchment, uh, the potsherds, the different languages. Remember the languages Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Uh, we talked a little bit about the Greek language, uh, the Old and New Testament breakdown, the different books, how uh, they are divided. Uh, we talked many times about the New Testament manuscript. Remember, these are the three main manuscripts that we use today as forming our current text. It's the Vatican, Sinaitic, an Alexandrian manuscript, but there are other uh, manuscripts or thousands of other manuscripts, different pieces and, and fragments uh, that we use uh, to kind of uh, determine uh, the validity of our current manuscripts. We also have our Old Testament manuscripts, which I believe I went past it. Uh, but that we again we had the three uh, different Old Testament manuscripts as well. Here we go: the Aleppo, the Leningrad, and the Cairo Codex as well. And what we'll see is that they are fairly young in comparison to the New Testament manuscripts. So it seems as though they're all around the 900 A.D. to 1000 A.D. Uh, but you know, really, what we see is that throughout time. We had these scribes that uh, basically, uh, as new copies were needed, they made these. And we see that they take great care in making sure that they are inscribing the text exactly as they found it. Uh, even to the point where uh, if our grammar changes, that they will make those changes, but... Like if they needed to insert a vowel, they would insert that below and above our lines of text. And so the Hebrew did not have vowels. And so as the language changed, they would add those and other changes as needed. It's really fascinating when you look at that. But as far as the, the, the original text, they strove very, very hard to make sure that they kept that same, um, same text throughout time. And we really see that the text that we have today matches uh, the text that we have from years and years ago. Uh, we have the Dead Sea Scrolls, we talked about that. Uh, the Samaritan Pentateuch, uh, the Targums, which are the oral paraphrases of scriptures. And so all of those, again, uh, pay uh, credence to our text today. They're very closely related to our text, even... Uh, these paraphrases of scripture that we have in the Targums. Um, which, and so we have the Latin Vulgate as well, Septuagint, and we went back and looked at these New Testament manuscripts again, the different, um, the different texts throughout time. We have this Diatessaron, which is a harmony of the Gospels, which really don't know exactly when it was written. It is said to be written around 170, but we don't have any original sources. We do, however, find a, a Greek Tesseron 
which was in a Roman fortress that was captured in 256. So what we can glean from that is although we don't have the original sources, secondary sources said it was written around 170, but we know that it had to have been earlier than 256 in which it was written. Uh, we have old Syriac copies of the New Testament, the, Cop the Coptic uh, versions as well. Uh, we, and then we get to the old Latin versions, which resulted in the Latin Vulgate. All right, so this was a Latin uh, translation of the Greek text. And it's, so we see where Jerome finished these four Gospels in 384, but it, at least at some point the rest uh, was completed, but we don't know whether or not Jerome finished that. Which takes us to our English translations, all right? And so this is kind of where we left off the last class, that uh, we don't really have a lot of information, but, what, but it does seem that we had pieces of English translations dating back to the 7th and 8th centuries. And so this wasn't, what we have is not complete Bibles, but it would just be parts of it, all right? And so like we see here, that, let me put this back. That we have these uh, versions of the Pentateuch, which again, that would be the five first five books of the Old Testament, the Psalms, and uh, the Gospels. And what we see is that a, at least uh, the first complete translation that we know of was by John Wycliffe in, in 1382. Now, uh, the thing about this is John Wycliffe's translation was a translation of the Latin, all right? So, the Latin Vulgate was a translation of the Greek. This translation was an English translation of, it, of the Latin, so it was a translation of a translation. And so, although I, if, if the translations are accurate, you should get the same meaning, uh, it is a little lacking in the sense that it was not a translation of the original text. And we see that that actually the first uh, translation from the Greek from uh, William Tyndall, which all of you might have heard of. And so we see him first translating the Greek in the Greek to English in 1526. There was a couple of new editions. And if you go and, and read about his life during this time, I mean, he's on the run. I mean, he's in exile. Uh, and you read both sides of the stories, and the Catholics will say, well, this guy was a heretic as to why they treated him uh, so harshly. Uh, but you see where, at least from my view, that he sought to translate the Greek into English and in, and in a translation that was easy for the common man to read. Uh, he, there's some story in which he was talking to some, uh, some Catholic bishop or deacon or, or some Catholic leader, and the Catholic dude basically says that it's better to observe the Pope's law rather than God's law. And, of course, that fires him up, and he says that I'm going to make it to where the man that pulls the plow knows more of the Bible than you do. And so that's very strong, what we see here. He wants the common man to know more of the Scriptures than the Pope or, uh, or a Catholic bishop. 
And so that was what his goal was. And of course, he was condemned by the Catholics. Copies were burned. Uh, we see where he was killed uh, for what he had done. It says here, this is from the Encyclopedia Britannica. It says, condemned for heresy, he was executed by strangulation and then burned at the stake in 1536. At his time of death, 18,000 copies of the New Testament had been printed. Well, we only have two complete volumes and a fragment at London's British Library. And so we see you go on and read that. Uh, it says his greatest achievement was the ability to strike a, uh, strike a balance between the needs of scholarship, simplicity of expression, and literary gracefulness, all in a uniform dialect. Uh, the effect was the creation of an English style of Bible translation tinged with Hebraisms that was to serve us and model for future English versions for nearly 400 years, beginning with the King James Version of 1611. And so what we see is that his translation was very pivotal. Uh, if you go and read, uh, they talked, he talked about this Hebraisms, that there were certain phrases that really come about with, with Tyndall uh, that we could use today. Uh, that he used to uh, really get the point across of what the original Greek uh, was trying to say. Right, so any questions, comments on this so far? Okay. It's amazing to think that up until that point, only the leaders of whatever religion it may have been at that time right. were the ones delivering the message. Correct, correct, and... We see this list. Um, notice, so this is starting a list of these different types of Bibles. And th and this is all, a lot of these are revisions of Tyndall's Bible. Or, you know, one of these Bibles may be a revision of some other Bible that we already see on the screen. But notice the Great Bible in 1539. It says it's a revision of Matthew's Bible, which was authorized to be read in churches. So kind of what you were saying there, it, there was still this issue that uh, this Bible, we're only going to read it in the congregation. You know, the common man is not going to be able to, to read this. It's only to be used uh, in the congregation. Okay, and so this is before, you know, the King of England, the Protestant Reformation. Now, all that stuff was getting fired up, but it was really before uh, where we see uh, this kind of this breakup of the, the, the power that the Catholic Church held over, you know, a great uh, part of the land, at least uh, England, uh, Europe, so on and so forth. And so we have the Geneva Bible which was in 1560. This was a very important uh, piece of work as well. It said it was printed each verse as a paragraph, and the words not in original text were, per were put in italics. So if you look at your Bible today, at least in mine, you'll see where there are certain words that are in italics. Now remember, those italics are just used to just better explain uh, the text that we have, but it is not in the original text. And so this is where uh, we originally see that, is in the Geneva Bible. Uh, we have the Bishop's Bible, which is in 1568. We have the, I don't know even how to say that, uh, the rhymed something in 1609 through 1610. This was the Catholic version of the English Bible, uh, which and then that takes us to uh, the King James Bible. All right, and so 
you know, again, even through from Tyndall through the early 1600s, there were many different Bibles being put out. And again, I want to stress that this these were not new works. These a lot, pretty much all of these were revisions on previous works that have already been uh, done. Right. So this takes us to the King James Bible. And really, when you when you look into this, if if you were going to uh, put together uh, a group of individuals that were going to translate the Bible in uh, an unbiased manner, uh, but yet it's very accurate, I don't know if I don't know how you would set it up any differently than how they set this up in, in translating uh, the King James Bible. Uh, we see that it was 48 scholars, and they were all broken up into six different companies, right? And so they weren't all together talking about their work, all right? So this was separate groups, and we see where each company was assigned specific uh, books to translate, okay? And so, again, there would be, you know, if there wouldn't be somebody that had that that maybe got to pick a certain book that they got to translate and maybe they could tweak it to where that would fit their agenda. We really don't see that. And so we see that it was, uh, at least in the way that they attempted to translate this Bible, it was in a very unbiased and very scholarly way as well. And so we see that it is completed in 1611. And it was initially revised in 1613, but we also see other revisions uh, throughout uh, the centuries here. And so, when uh, this Bible <coughs> was uh, given, we see that it replaced the Bishop's Bible and the Geneva Bible as the preferred English translation. Uh, the Geneva Bible was... Uh, the, basically, the individual could use the Geneva Bible, but we see where the Bishop's Bible was used, again, more in uh, churches, congregations. But we see where the King James replaced both of those. All right? And so, I don't have a whole lot on that, but I, I'm sure there's a lot that you could talk about that. And and one thing that I, that I would note is that, um, you know, really, it's interesting that we have... Tyndall, and so years ago, one of the last things that Tyndall says was basically, he, he, he says, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. And it's, it's very interesting, not long after that, that we have King James basically initiating uh, this translation, uh, different from any Catholic translation, uh, any Latin translation. And so this was a pretty big deal, and it really... You know, at least for hundreds of years, it set the standard uh, for uh, the Bible translation. Any comments, questions? All right. Uh, other English translations we have, and this was more modern, uh, we have the English Revised Version, which was in 1885. And so this was a revision of the King James. Uh, we have the American Standard Version, which was in 1901. All right, and so one thing to think about with these other translations is although the King James was really, I mean, a pretty good translation, is that if you recall, 
the New Testament manuscripts that we use today is that some of those manuscripts were not even discovered when the King James was written, okay? And so, I don't think it... Um, I don't think it detracts from its accuracy. Uh, we do see where the King James, there are some things that could be translated better, uh, but we see that even the King James brings forth uh, the, pretty much the same message as our, or, as a, or more modern translations today. But the thing about these newer translations is that we have new or more manuscripts, more text to look at, and it gives us, you know, just a wider base to look at as far as the text and to bring forth uh, a, a, a continued accurate translation. And this was the case with these English revi uh, Revised Version, American Standard Version, and uh, these versions that we'll look uh, later on at. Uh, we have the Revised Standard Version in 1952. And then we have the New American Standard Bible, which... Uh, the New Testament translation was completed in 1963, and then we have the Old Testament translation in 1971. And so, the New American Standard was just a revision of the American Standard. Uh, I think it, those that use the New American Standard could attest that it is a more, lit uh, more literal style uh, compared to the King James or New King James where it may not be as a literal translation as the New American Standard. There but I prefer New King James. There is yeah. now, they're working on an updated American Standard Version. Not an NASB, but a mm -hmm. new ASB. ASB. Yeah. So yeah. And so, and, and of course, this is not a, a, a exhaustive list of all the different translations. I mean, there's a list as long as my arm of different translations. And really, you know, again, they all go back to that same text. A lot of it's just a, a balance of uh, literalness versus more of a paraphrase style of translation. Right? Then we have the New International Version. New Testament was completed in 1973. The Old Testament was completed in 1978. Any questions, comments on that? Okay. So, which takes us to our next point, and, and this may be kind of out of place, but there was a, a the discussion that we've had, especially when we talked about the apocryphal books, and I'm too bad Miss Wanda's not here because we were talking about this, but... When we talk about uh, these books or the legitimacy of these books, a lot of times what is brought up is that there will be passages that are in certain manuscripts that are not in others. Or it may be uh, it's mentioned by one individual uh, in history, but it's disputed by another one uh, in history. And one such text is Mark 16 uh, verses 9 through 20. Every time you you get into a conversation, seems like, or if you're watching, if you go surf YouTube and, and you watch videos talking about the legitimacy of the Bible, legit legitimacy of the New Testament, at some point somebody's going to mention Mark 16 verses 9 through 20. And I just want to look at that. Uh, let's turn there. Mark 16 verses 9 through 20. And if you recall, this is really the very end of the book of Mark. And this was after Christ was crucified. 
And beginning in verse 9, it says, Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. After that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then, after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and set down at the right hand of God, and they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord confirming with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. Right, so... Again, verses 9 through 20. And so, it's often disputed as being legitimate. And so, one thing I, I talked about before, I, don't, I can't remember if it was last class or not, about you know thinking about the legitimacy of the Scriptures is one point that we look at and to determine the legitimacy of it, of course, this is not the only point, but whether or not it contradicts other scriptures. And so, do we see anything in verses 9 through 20? Just ask the question. Uh, do we see anything in verses 9 through 20 uh, that contradicts other scriptures? That's just, this is wild, this is blatantly false. I mean, I I, I don't see anything. And, and it... And it pretty much lines up with the other Gospels and their telling of these events, all right? And so we don't see anything, and one thing that should be noted is that when these scholars or these critics look at uh, uh, this text, it's not an issue of whether or not uh, this text is correct or it lines up with the rest of the Scriptures. Uh, really... It's because that some uh, manuscripts do not contain uh, this passage. It's not in the Vaticanus or, or the Synaptic manuscripts. And what's interesting about this, and, and so it's not in those manuscripts, but if I recall correctly, and I can't remember which manuscript it is, but in one of those manuscripts... As, it, as Mark ends, so it, it would end in, in verse 8, that there is basically some leftover space where they were writing, all right? Which is very interesting. It's almost like the, the guy took a lunch break and he just didn't come back. You know, something happened to where they couldn't finish it. But it, like I said, it looks as though uh, there is some extra space there to add uh, some additional, additional verses, which uh, that doesn't uh, make it make it right doesn't make it legitimate but it does kind of build the case for that and so it's not in these two manuscripts uh and then people will argue that there that there's different words that are used in in these last few passages that are different than the rest of mark and that's just 
people make that case is kind of silly because you look at other books and they'll do the same thing. You can look at specific passages that use different words in the rest of the book. So that's really not a strong argument. But that is some of the, the critiques uh, that is given uh, for verses 9 through 20. Uh, we do see where these passages are found in the Alexandrian manuscript. Okay. In the second century, we do see where Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, and Tatian actually quotes not not the entirety, but they do quote uh, parts of verses nine through twenty. All right, and so what that means is that at least somewhere, these verses were in manuscripts. They were in letters, copies of these letters, at least during the second century. All right, and so these individuals, by quoting it, lend credence to the fact that they see those passages as legitimate. Do you have something? No, I have a footnote in mind about this. It's not in the Vaticanus Codex or the Sinaiticus, mm-hmm. but it is in nearly all other manuscripts. Yeah, yeah, just like you said. Just mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so. Uh, Hippolytus and Dionysius of Alexandria quote uh, some of this passage in, in the third century. Okay, and so I got this quote. Uh, this is from an article written. It says, "Is Mark sixteen nine through twenty spurious or genuine?" It's written by Mark Mayberry, and it says, "It is interesting to note that all of the ancient versions of the New Testament contain Mark sixteen nine through 20 this of necessity emphasizes that the passage was a part of the Greek text from which these translations were made. Among these versions are the Peshito Syriac, the Old Italic, the Sahidic, and the Coptic. All of these existed long before the Vatican and the Sinaitic manuscripts and long before Jerome. So, and some of these versions of the Bible should be familiar with you. We talked about that. We talked about the Coptic. We talked about the Peshitta. And so, this was a part of those ancient texts, okay? But, we do see where the, again, uh, it's not in those two manuscripts. Apparently, Jerome has a problem with this as well. But we see, again, just like what Mr. Geary was saying, that this text is basically in all of these ancient versions. But it's just lacking in those two manuscripts. And so... These people were reading it. They considered it scripture. We have these people, we have these quotes from these people from the 2nd and 3rd century that quote it as being legitimate. And so, we we can see the case uh, for uh, those scriptures as being legitimate. These things were considered scripture by those individuals of that time. Questions, comments on that? Even if you took it out, it doesn't change the message, you know. Yeah. You're gonna get the same facts. Yeah. You're gonna put together the same puzzle, you know, by, by the rest of it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and it's and you could read you could read for days on the arguments. There's a there's a lot of you know different opinions on what this is. You know if it's legitimate or not. And there's a lot of individuals, and of course I think. A lot of people have issues with Mark, uh, this passage because of what it talks about, uh, the signs, you know, the miracles and all that stuff. And, of course, with Mark 16, 16 as well, 
talking about uh, believe and be baptized. And so, you know, people will look at those verses and say, well, they're not even genuine and just breeze over what they have to say. But what we what we see is that I think the evidence holds to the fact that these passages are uh, genuine. Okay. So, and then, of course, I ended it. Uh, one more question that, that I think about is why would Mark end in verse 8? It's kind of a, a weird spot to end, right? Because, so, we see where he's crucified. He's, uh, we see where the people come. They, they're, they're amazed. But we don't really see where uh, the apostles see Christ, and we see that in verses 9 through 20. And so when you think about how that is ended, how the, how the wording and how abrupt that ending would be in verse 8, uh, you know, again, I think that's an argument that could be made that probably Mark wrote more uh, than what, we, than what uh, some may argue. Yeah, I mean, uh, if you ended there the last, sentence in Mark would be, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Yeah. I mean, that's total opposite of, of the gospel message, really. Yeah, and what I mean, the the foundational message was Christ resurrected, and we see where, you know, again, we have the, the apostles seeing him rose, and then we see where he gave the Great Commission, and so we, have, we would have all of that missing, which of all the stuff to, to, to not put in, right? I mean, that's, I mean, that is it. That is the one thing that you do need to include in your text. And if you end it, it's not there. Okay. One more passage we're going to look at is at Jude 14 and, and 15. And uh, this is a verse that, Miss Wanda started talking about, and that we see, well, if I can get there, Jude 14 and 15. So Jude quotes here uh, Enoch, and it says, uh, Now Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied about these men, also saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Okay, so again, I'll ask the same thing, like I asked in Mark. Is there anything here that's this quote that's just out of line? That would that would that would be something that's just contradictory to other things that we read in scripture I mean I I, I don't know about you I, I really I mean the Lord's coming in judgment right we don't have this all the specifics you know here we have the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all but we still see where you know, there's multiple passages that talks about the Lord's coming in judgment. And he's coming against judgment against sinners. And so, here, so, we see this quote that is from Enoch. There's also a book of Enoch, all right, that this actually 
that we, well, I will say the quote in the book of Enoch is extremely close uh, to what we see Jude quoting, all right? And so this book, from all accounts, from what others individuals say, it was written around 300 to 200 B.C., a very long, um, but it, and it has a lot to do with talking about angels, talking about demons. Uh, in Genesis, where it talks about the sons of God basically having kids with women, all right? Of course, there's, we, there's, we have debates whether or not that's just godly men or angels. The book of Enoch takes that as being angels, and so it talks a lot about that type of stuff talks about the the giants uh very very interesting but we see again this quote in chapter one in verse nine and here uh again it, it's it's very very close to what we see uh with jude and so uh it's not hard to see that it's it's a possibility that jude actually is quoting uh this book but you know, one thing uh, that we see, and of course this is a quote, uh, Enoch is, is not found in the scrolls, it's not part of the canon, but a few possibilities that I want to think about as far as uh, this quote in Jude is that it's possible that he could have been citing this book, okay? That this is a true statement, uh, that this is, this is legitimate, and he's citing it. But the one thing about that, if, if he is citing this, it does not necessarily mean uh, that the Enoch is inspired, and it does not mean that Jude uh, is not inspired, okay? And so we see, you know, I think about Paul talking about uh, some secular things, uh, and he's using those things to, 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 for people to think about the gospel of Christ, and, you know, using those elements, and that may be true, uh, does not just negate uh, the inspiration of uh, those passages. And I was thinking about something else, and my mind went blank. But uh, you think about um, Gamaliel, I think that's how you say it. Was it he was the one that said, uh, it's better for one man to die than for the whole country to die. Was that him? Right? And so, who was it? I can't remember. But anyways, y'all know who I'm talking about. Okay? And so, was he inspired? Obviously, no. He wasn't inspired. But did he hit the nail on the head? I mean, he got it. I mean, he, whether he knew it or not, he had he had it figured out. Okay? And so, we can see where these individuals can say things that are truthful, but at the same time not be inspired. Okay, and you know another possibility is that Jude, uh, maybe, Enoch actually did say this, and Jude being inspired, it was quoting Enoch, but yet somehow that statement had been passed down throughout time. Maybe it is a possibility that the Jews had some writing or some oral history of Enoch and this was something uh, that he did actually say and somehow made its way uh, into that book right any questions comments on this right 
And there's other passages, um, John 7, 53 through chapter 8 through 11 situation with Jesus and the Samaritan woman, I, I do believe. Uh, this kind of the same thing as Mark 16. Some of the passages, some of the manuscripts don't have it. But again, it, it, it's the same argumentation that could be made uh, for uh, that they're in some manuscripts uh, that people, uh, you know, people deem it to be uh, inspired scripture as well. Right. Well, I think we're about out of time and I've run out of stuff to say, at least for this hour. We're going to conclude the next hour and um I hope, again, this has been useful for y'all. Uh, maybe clear some things up. Uh, maybe, you know, again, maybe help you learn some things that you didn't already know. And uh, will help you if you ever come you know, around somebody who will dispute the legitimacy of the Bible.